I want to tell a little story here before we get into our study. Sometimes we talk about things for a while, and it, such as the patience and the faith of Jesus and things, and sometimes a little story to illustrate helps put things in perspective in our daily lives. How many of you have seen a book that tells the experiences of a man who is a Seventh-day Adventist in China? The book is called The Man They Couldn't Kill or something like that. Have any of you seen the book? Have you read it? Okay, some of you have seen it. A few of you have read it. You, you probably will recognize the story then. It was a story that uh, really was an illustration to me of what patience is in practical experience. The man was put in hard labor camp. He spent quite a number of years there, at least 14 years. And on one occasion, as often happened, he faced many trials, sometimes beatings and other types of difficulties because of his determination not to violate the Sabbath. He would not work on Sabbath. On one occasion, because of his always praying and asking the Lord to bless his food and to thank the Lord for his food, even though we probably would hardly call it food. It may have been watered-down soup and, and uh, a few stale barley rolls or something like that. He always thanked the Lord for food, and, and he always bowed his head and and asked the Lord to bless the food. On this particular occasion, he he bowed his head and he closed his eyes and he thanked the Lord for the food and asked his blessing upon it. And when he opened his eyes, as he was there with other the other inmates of the concentration camp and the guards and all of the people who were there, he opened his eyes and the food was gone. And he looked around trying to figure out what had happened to it. And one of the guards who was nearby said, uh, what, What's wrong? What are you looking for? And he said, My food is gone. And the guard said, Oh, one of the prisoners was really sorry for you because you are so determined to thank this God that doesn't even exist that you believe in and you need to learn to thank the benevolent government for providing your food and you come with me and I'll show you where it is and he took him outside and what little food there was was dumped on the ground and been ground into the dirt the guard commanded him to take that and eat it that was all he had with the grit and the dirt and whatever was in it so he, he did the best that he could with that. At the next meal, what would you have done? Would you keep your eyes open while you asked the blessing? <laughs> would you silently say a blessing in your mind without looking like you were bowing your head? He followed the practice he had always followed, just like Daniel. He bowed his head, he closed his eyes, 
He thanked the Lord for the food and he asked the Lord's blessing on it. And when he opened his eyes, guess what? The food was gone. Same thing again. The food was outside, ground into the dirt. The guard commanded him to eat it the way it was. That happened at the next meal and the next meal and the next meal. It happened every day that week. Every day. And the following week and the following week for a whole month. After a month, would you still bow your head, close your eyes, ask the Lord's blessing and thank Him for the food, confidently expecting it would be gone? <laughs> you know how long that went on? For six months, every meal taken outside when He closed His eyes and bowed and asked the Lord to bless it, ground into the dirt. Finally, after six months, one day he, at the meal, he bowed his head and he closed his eyes and he thanked the Lord for the food. He still thanked the Lord for the food. And he asked the Lord to bless it. And he opened his eyes and the food was still there. He bowed his head again and he thanked the Lord that his food was still there. When I read that story, it was an illustration to me. There's the kind of patience that we need to develop and perfect. He didn't get angry at the people around him. He had a desire to show them that, that a true Christian can accept what takes place and trust in the Lord and thank the Lord. We need that kind of experience. This afternoon, I would like to study together with you what really continues on with most all of the things that we've been studying through this weekend and gives us a little bit of a basis to see where they fit into a very big overview, the broad picture, the really broad picture. How would you feel if one morning you woke up and all of your surroundings had changed? As you... You know, sometimes when we wake up, it takes a, a few moments to start becoming accustomed to to everything. Sometimes I know that I have laying in bed for a few moments, or maybe even a few minutes, when I first wake up and I'm, I'm getting accustomed to the thought of getting out of bed. <laughs> and, and I'm ascertaining whether it's daylight yet and other things, you know, just kind of laying there trying to slowly become accustomed to full consciousness. And suppose that was happening to you and, and as you opened your eyes gradually and looked around, you discovered that you were on a stage in a big auditorium. Your bed was right there in the middle of a stage. And as you, you looked around and you looked out, you saw that there were thousands and thousands of people a large auditorium, and they were all watching you. It was like a big show. And as you, maybe you would have temptation to just pull the blankets back over your head. <laughs> but as, as you became more and more conscious, you noticed that there were sinister-looking men crouched around on the stage watching you. How would you feel? In reality, that's where we are every day. We are on a stage, and there is a conflict that we are engaged in 
there are forces bent upon our destruction. But we don't usually see them. And we are on a stage of action with thousands and thousands, actually millions of intelligences and eyes watching what we are doing. Each one of us are watching just as intently as if there was no one else existing. And I want to discuss what kind of a conflict is taking place and how it is that we are on a stage and what is to be developed. In the book Great Controversy, page 593, we find this statement. Those who endeavor to obey all the commandments of God will be opposed and derided. Those who endeavor to do what? Obey all the commandments of God will be opposed and derided. They can stand only in God in order to endure the trial before them. This says there's a trial before them. In order to endure the trial before them, they must understand. Now, what is understanding? What kind of a function is that? Is that a function of our arms, our hands? or Yes, it's a function of our mind. That means a certain order of thinking. In order to endure the trial before them, they must understand the will of God as revealed in his word. Now there's something else besides understanding. They can honor him. So we must understand and also honor God. They can honor him only as they have a right conception of three things. You know what they are? His character, government, and purposes. Now those are three key words. I have found those words again and again in reading through the Spirit of Prophecy. It talks about sometimes one or two of them, a few times three of them, sometimes one of them. It says that we can only honor God as we have a right conception. That means that it's possible to have wrong conceptions, doesn't it? If we have a wrong conception, can we still honor God? No. And this is a right conception on all three things, not just one or two of them. Only as we have a right conception of his character, government, and purposes. You may have read a passage in the book Patriarchs and Prophets. In fact, I think it may occur in several different places. It says that many people are actually worshiping a false god. They're engaged in idolatry because they have a misconception of God's character. This says we must have a right conception of God's character, government, and purposes, and then there's something else. It's not just a matter of understanding his will and having a right conception of these three areas. What do you think the other thing is? All right, it is, it is definitely an activity of faith, but it says, and act in accordance with them. So that means there must be a right conception of these things and then actions based on that understanding. 
Now, really, this is very logical. If we are going to exercise the part God has for us in the developments of all of the events taking place, we need to understand what's taking place, and we need to act in accordance with that, don't we? So that's really reasonable. They can honor him only as they have a right conception of his character, government, and purposes and act in accordance with them. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. Let's look at some passages of Scripture and see what the nature of this conflict is in which we must understand God's character, government, and purposes. I think these three areas will come to be more meaningful to us as we realize, going along in our study, that these are areas that Satan has called into question. God's character, his government, and his purposes. These are three areas Satan has called into question. Let's go to the book of Revelation first. Revelation chapter 12. Is everybody there? We're going to look at some very significant questions, so we we need to be able to See what these verses are saying. Revelation 12 starts out describing two great wonders that are seen in heaven. What is the first one? Yes, a woman clothed with a sun. And what's under her feet? The moon. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. What does this woman represent? The church. Which church? <laughs> the, the remnant church? Well, you've got 12 stars of the European Union, <clears throat> So there could be some different explanations. At what point in history does this woman represent, or is this representation taking place? Can this represent the church, let's say, back a thousand years before Christ? No? Yes? Okay, a thousand years before Christ, what did being clothed with the sun represent? Christ's righteousness. What did having the crown of twelve stars represent? But the twelve twelve tribes? Twelve tribes of Israel? And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. What does that represent a thousand years before the time of Christ? Persecution? Well, I'm thinking particularly of, of being with child, travailing in birth. doesn't really fit that's right 
How many of you have read the book Acts of the Apostles in the discussion of some of this symbolism? Nobody, nobody has. Well, let's read a few more verses here and see if we can see any clear application. Let's read through these first two verses, especially again. There appeared a great wonder in heaven. When is this vision taking place? Well, I'm talking about time. When in time? Is this before the birth of Christ? This is after Christ ascended to heaven. All the New Testament was written. This was probably close to 90 years after the birth of Christ when the book of Revelation was written. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Now who is the child that's speaking of here? Notice what it says down in verse 4. It describes a dragon who stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. I don't think we have much trouble seeing an application of that to the birth of Christ and to his ministry and ascension to heaven. He was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. God's church in the wilderness for twelve hundred and sixty years. We can see that in this prophecy here. So, what does the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and twelve stars upon her head, travailing in birth, to bring forth the man-child represent? It represents God's church in the time period when Christ, at Christ's first advent. And the developments of that church, in the apostolic church, brought forth the developments of the twelve apostles, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the demonstration of God's power. All of these things were in the developments of the church back at, at that time period. And following that time period was the time when God's church went into the wilderness for 1260 years. Now let's go to verse 3. There appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Now what was the sequence here? Which appears first in the, the sequence? Well, the woman appears in heaven first in the, the portrayal here, right? Verse 1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. That's the first thing in the sequence described here. Then the dragon appears. Where was the woman? Where did this wonder appear? In heaven. In heaven, that's right. Where did the dragon appear? 
In heaven. They're both appearing in heaven. Now this doesn't necessarily mean in heaven where God's throne is. You know, there are different heavens described in the Bible. And, verse 4, it says, His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. All right, we've identified that the woman represents God's church. What does the dragon represent? All right, how do we know? Verse 9, that's right. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. Now notice, we'll back up a little bit here and notice some of the sequence of events. These two wonders appear in heaven, the woman and the dragon. And the dragon is ready to devour the woman's child as soon as it's born, but the child is caught up to heaven. The woman flees into the wilderness And then verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. Now that's a very significant phrase, and hopefully we'll be able to come back and look at that a little more. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. When did that take place? (laughs) Right, was Satan cast out before creation? Notice verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength. When? At the point where Satan is cast out of heaven. It's when Satan is cast out of heaven that it says, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of who? Of our brethren is what? Cast down which accused them before our God day and night. Now, I, I don't want to be causing confusion here, but I want to ask some questions that will help us to see that we need to study a little more deeply into this chapter. Satan, Satan lost his uh, ability to, to go backwards and forwards to heaven at the crucifixion of Jesus. All right. We're going to look at a passage that that makes a very definite application of this to the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. But the question that we, we would want to address first is, when was Satan cast out of heaven? All right, he was cast out of heaven before creation. We know that very clearly because of the rebellion that took place in heaven and he was cast out of heaven. Yeah, he had still access to heaven because in the book of Job he was there representing the planet. Yeah. So All right, he, so obviously he was kind of removed from his post, but he still could go there as a representative of this planet, especially since Adam could no longer do that function. All right, let's go to the book of Job for just a little bit and we'll come back and develop some of these these uh, lines of thought in a little bit. 
But in the book of Job, and interestingly, you know which, which books of the Bible were written first? Job and Genesis. Genesis describes the beginnings of the earth and of the rebellion on this earth, the developments of sin. Job describes the controversy going on between Christ and Satan. And these two books give us a picture of all the developments that have been taking place for a long time. Let's go to Job, the first chapter. And for the sake of time, I'm going to hope that you're familiar with this story and we will just look at a few verses. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, So who starts the conversation? Yes, God initiates the conversation. And what does he say? He says, Where have you been? What have you been doing? And what is Satan's answer? Going up and down to and fro through the earth. He doesn't say anything real specific. But God says to him, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? That is, hates evil. So right away, God directs the discussion down a certain avenue, and he says, have you noticed Job? Why would he single out Job and ask if, if Satan has observed Job? The indication here is that there has been some type of an issue going on and God is directing the attention to something that demonstrates his side of the issue. Because Satan answers back, and he basically expresses a doubt. He says, Doth, God, doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. So he says, sure, Job worships you because of all the things you do for him. You bless him, and you protect him, and he's basically saying, Job is serving you out of selfish motives. He says, if you, if you took away these blessings, he'd curse you to your face. So what does God say? He says, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. In essence, he says, Okay, I'm going to let you make up the test. Job is loyal to me. He serves me with all his heart. He's a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And if you don't believe that, you can make up a test you devise the test, and you can administer it to him. And he will prove to you that he's loyal to me, regardless of what kind of a test you put him through. 
That's what God, in essence, is saying to Satan here. But you can't touch his body or his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And what happened right away? His sons and his daughters were killed. He lost his possessions. Vast herds and flocks immediately destroyed, stolen, taken away. Just one right after another, servants that escaped came back and, and reported all the devastation and loss. What was Job's reaction? Verse 22, and all that took place. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Again, there was a day, this is the beginning of chapter 2 now, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said unto Satan, so who initiates the conversation again? Now at this point, do you think Satan is anxious to say, yes, see, I got to do what I wanted to do, and Job is not loyal to you. I proved it. Is that what how the conversation goes? No. God initiates the conversation, and do you think he wants to make sure that Satan recognizes what the outcome of the demonstration is? Yes, because right away he comes right to the point. Have you noticed? My servant Job? And even after all you've done to him, he's still loyal to me. He worships and serves me. He feareth God and escheweth evil. He's a perfect and an upright man, and there's none like him in the earth. And he still holdeth fast his integrity. So what is Satan's answer? Does he, does he say, yes, I guess I was wrong? <laughs> no. As long as there is any possibility of credibility for some argument that he can bring back, and accuse God and show that God is wrong, Satan will latch on to that. And so now he pursues another line of argument. He says, well, sure, skin for skin. All that a man has will he give for his life. Sure, Job will give up everything he has to save his own life. Just let me do a little to him. Let me touch his bone and his flesh, and then you'll see whether he really serves you, whether he's really loyal to you. Let me put him to a little more test. So what does the Lord say? He says, all right, Satan, you devise the test. You do anything you want, but you can't take his life. That's what God is saying. Now, did Job know that this was going on? No. He had no idea that he was actually a demonstration model to prove who was right in a controversy between Christ and Satan. He was on the stage of action. Every angel in heaven and every being in the universe, all of Satan's angels and Satan were intently watching. How is Job going to react? And whatever happened was going to prove whether God was right or whether Satan was right. 
Now, why were all the heavenly intelligences so intent on watching what was going to happen? Why? Because... Don't, don't you think the loyal angels already believed that God was right? But Lucifer hadn't given up his argument and claimed that his way was better than God's. <clears throat> well, was it simply to convince Lucifer then? No, there was some doubt. There was some doubt in the angels. They weren't sure. Okay, so possibly the angels needed to see this demonstration to know for sure or to be confirmed. Maybe they thought that God was probably right, but they needed confirmation. So, Satan gets permission to do whatever he wants to do. He can devise the test. How many of us would like to be in Job's position? We are. The devil's going to be making sure that there won't be 144. Well, don't run, run ahead of me here. <laughs> Let's think about it for a minute. What if we could be aware that there was a discussion going on in heaven at this point and God said, all right, I'm going to give you permission to do anything you want. Put your name in there. <laughs> yes, you can't kill him. Well, you can put him through all the torture you want. Yes. But we're not doing much better even though we know. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. <coughs> and at that point, what did his wife say? You know, in, yes, in marriage, I don't know what the vows were back at that time. You know, in marriage, there are vows to, to be true and faithful in sickness and in health and all of those kind of things. Till death us do yes, till death do us part. So did his wife comfort him and encourage him and help him in this time of trial and adversity? No, what did she say? She said, why don't you curse God and die? Well, there were three of his friends that felt very sorry for him. And they came to comfort him. And they sat there and they were so overwhelmed with grief and sympathy that they didn't even say anything for seven days. They just sat there with him trying to, to sympathize with his grief. And then finally they started talking. And after listening to them, what is Job's response? Miserable comforters you are. But that was an additional test by the devil. Yes, it was. They, all three of them told lies constantly. And well, that's, that's the, the, you know, it is a modern phenomenon because <laughs> preachers can be preaching lies. Well, in, in one respect, that might be the case, but if you read through what they say, many of the things they say are true. It's an inspired part of the Bible. No, it's, it's an it's a inspired record of what the devil sent to confound. What? You see, that you, you get there, for instance, one of them tells a story about a, a, a demon-possessed vision coming to him, but it's a false spirit who came to him. 
Another message was, you're just a worm. No, God says, you are my beloved children. So they're lies. The devil, in other words, if you read that, you must remember that isn't God's message. It's the devil's message. God just inspired the recording of it so that we can understand that when the false preacher preaches, it is a lie. When, when you read through there, though, and carefully compare, what you find is that there are many things that are actually truths, but they're put in a wrong context in applying them to Job. That's the demonic method. Yes. Truth with error. It's, it's a wrong application of something that in the right context would be true. But in all of this, Job maintains his integrity. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, it doesn't tell us that there's any of any more discussion between God and Satan. It doesn't tell us again a third time near the end of the book that Satan is there again and, and there's discussion. But if there was discussion, who do you think would initiate the discussion? Do you think Satan would say, see, see what I've been telling you? Now we've proved it. No, he didn't have any grounds to be able to make that kind of a claim. I think, again, God would have said, have you noticed my servant Job? How in spite of all of these things that have taken place, he still maintains his integrity, and he's been true to me. So we see very clearly here that, that there are issues of contest taking place between Christ and Satan, and that man is the demonstration of which side is right. In this contest, the demonstration is taking place in humanity. Now let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. This gives us a little background on what it's describing here in chapter 12 when it says that the accuser of who? Of our brethren is cast down. Now we know that Satan was cast out of heaven previous to... Adam and Eve and the creation of this earth. But this casting down that it's speaking of here refers to the accuser of our brethren being cast down. Was Satan the accuser of our brethren previous to the creation of Adam and Eve? No. So that immediately suggests that there's more than one casting down of Satan. Now how is Satan cast down? We usually think of Satan being cast down in a physical sense. He was cast out of heaven so that he wasn't able to stay in heaven anymore physically. In what sense was Satan cast down at this point? I'd like to go to the book Desire of Ages. Page 671. Read a, a passage, I'm sorry, 761. Get pages right here. Speaking of the experience of Christ at the close of his life as he hung on the cross, it says, Could one sin have been found in Christ had he in one particular yielded to Satan to escape the terrible torture the enemy of God and man would have triumphed. Have you ever thought about what it means for Satan to have triumphed? What would have happened if Satan had triumphed? 
That means that he would have proved that he was right and God was wrong. How would that have affected all the heavenly universe? That would mean that God's government was compromised. That would mean that the source of life and existence for the universe was now compromised in the rulership. The dominion was placed in Satan's hands. That would, in essence, have put things into a spiral that would have resulted in self-destruction. I don't think we oftentimes pause to think what a tremendous risk the whole universe was put out by Christ coming here in humanity and putting himself on probation where just one sin would have given the victory to Satan. Could one sin have been found in Christ? How much of a sin would it have had to have been? What? Yes. What? What kind of things are manifestations of impatience? Have you ever had somebody say something to you, and and it sounded so ridiculous and absurd, you didn't want to answer, but you just kind of roll your eyes. Sometimes, a manifestation of irritation or impatience impatience can be just that slight. Christ never did. One thing that was a manifestation of irritation, impatience, he never raised his voice in irritation. He never spoke sharply, quickly, or rudely. Not once. Christ bowed his head and died, but he held fast his faith and his submission to God. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. The what? The power of his Christ. It says, now is come the power of his Christ. How does that relate to this experience? Christ was developing a new level of power by this experience. Now is come all of these things it mentions, and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Have you ever uh, studied or thought about why God did not destroy Satan when he initially rebelled? Why did he cast him out of heaven and allow him to continue on his existence and contaminate the earth and ruin all the things that have been ruined by sin. What what would the angels have done if God had immediately destroyed all the wicked angels and Satan? Yes. In in the Book Patriarchs and Prophets. There's a chapter at the beginning of the book called The Origin of Sin or Origin of Evil. And there's a chapter very similar in the book Great Controversy, The Origin of Evil. And I would like to share just a few thoughts from some of these passages that indicate 
why God did not destroy the angels when sin first took place. Even when he, that is Satan, was cast out of heaven, and this is from Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 42 and 43, even when he was cast out of heaven, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan, since only the service of love can be acceptable to God, the allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. Now remember the statement we read from Great Controversy 593 said that we can only honor God as we understand three things. What were they? His character, government, and purposes. Do you see this tying in with understanding those? The allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. The inhabitants of heaven and of the worlds, all the other worlds that were created previous to this earth. It says there were inhabitants of other worlds at the time that Satan was cast out of heaven. The inhabitants of heaven and of the other of the worlds being unprepared to comprehend the nature or consequences of sin could not then have seen the justice of God in the destruction of Satan. It says they were unprepared to comprehend the nature or consequences of sin. Why could they, they not understand the nature or consequences of sin? They had never seen it before. They had never seen all the outworking of sin and what it produces. This was a totally new experience in the universe. You could say it was, it was just an alternative opinion to, what, to God's law. Well, Satan had said, I can make things better. He had convinced how many of the angels? A third. Now, the angels had much more intelligence than we do. And his reasoning convinced a third of them that he had better plans for the operation of the government of the universe. Do you believe Satan knew where it was leading? Satan didn't. Didn't at that time. God explained to him where it was leading. It says, Had he been immediately blotted out of existence, some would have served God from fear rather than love. The influence... What does the word influence mean? Yes, the effect. The, the influence that a person has is, is the, the power that they have over other people. The influence of the deceiver would not have been fully destroyed, nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated. So destroying Satan and the evil angels would not have effectually eradicated the influence that Satan had developed. Satan had raised arguments. He had voiced opinions. Those opinions had been voiced to the other angels questions had been raised that were not answered. If Satan had been destroyed, would all those questions have been eliminated? 
No. More questions would have been added. Now, how would all of those questions be answered? <laughs> when I was a little boy, being raised in an Adventist uh, family, going to Sabbath school and having my parents read to me from Bible story books and things, I can remember even at a very young age having questions in my mind about some of the things relating to to why it was that God didn't just destroy all the angels or or just destroy everything and start over again. Would that have worked? You know, that was a question in my mind. And I can remember thinking at a, an early age, I had heard stories in Sabbath school about how somebody had committed a terrible crime and they were condemned to die for their crime. And right at the last minute, as, as they were getting ready to be executed or as sentence was getting ready to be pronounced, someone would rush in and say, I will take their place. Let me die and let them go free. You know, many different variations of, of this kind of story I remember hearing as, as I was growing up. And I, I used to think in my mind, why was it that that someone could die in someone else's place and it would satisfy the the requirement of justice. If if you had a young daughter who was raped and brutally murdered by somebody, and maybe they had done that to many children, would it satisfy justice if at the trial someone rushed in and said someone who was totally innocent said, I will take their place, let them go free. How would you feel as a parent if, if that person was left to go free because an innocent person had been willing to die in their place? Would you feel like justice was fully satisfied and you'd be so thankful that, that someone had died to satisfy that, that crime? No. Justice is really only fully satisfied if the person who does the crime is the one who is punished. Isn't that justice? So in my mind, there were questions like this about, about issues of justice and, and how it relates to settling these questions of sin. I want to come back to that in a little bit. But it says here, the influence of the deceiver would not have been fully destroyed, nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated. For the good of the entire universe, through ceaseless ages, he that is, Satan must more fully develop his principles that his charges against the divine government might be seen in their true light by all created beings, and that the justice and mercy of God and the immutability of his law might be forever placed beyond all question. Now let's think for just a little bit about the creation. When God created this earth, he created man perfectly. God did everything he could to place everything on a position or in a situation for perfect development. Was the vegetation all perfect that God created? Yes. 
everything. It says each day when God looked at the things that he created that they were good. And at the end, when he had finished creating all of the things, it was very good. Everything was complete. Everything was finished. How do we know it was all finished? God rested. That's right. And he said so. When he finished the creation, it says in Genesis 2, 1 and 2. In fact, maybe it would be good to look there just a moment. Because the way that it's worded is very significant. Genesis 2, 1 and 2. Thus the, what? Heavens and the earth were what? Finished. What does that mean? That means it was completed. Yes, completely done. And all the host of them. The host of what? The heavens and the earth. If If we look at this carefully... I think we will see here more than just the creation of this earth. We see here that God had a divine plan which he was following from the very beginning when he first started creating anything. The very first thing he created, whether it was Lucifer or other worlds or whatever it was. When he started creating, he had a plan that was organized and it was very definite. Nothing was done just on a whim. And as he was creating, he was working toward a goal. And when he had finished creating everything that needed to be created for the accomplishment of that goal, we are right here in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, and it says, Then he instituted the Sabbath. And on the seventh day, God ended what? His work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from how much of his work? all his work which he had made. I believe we see envisioned there all of his creative activity in the whole universe. He finished it. Everything was in place, ready for eternal existence. Then he instituted the Sabbath. And the Sabbath could not have been instituted any time previous to that. The Sabbath did not exist before that. Because the Sabbath is the rest that comes when the work is done. Now this is one reason why Sunday can never be the Sabbath. What was God doing on the first day of creation week? He was working. He was creating. What was he doing on the second day? Creating. Third day, creating. All the way down through the sixth day. On the seventh day, he had finished all of his work of creating. The Sabbath is a sign that the work is finished. It's the rest that comes when the work is finished. If you have a marginal reading there in verse 1 for the word finished, what does it say? The Hebrew literally means brought to completion. That's what the word finished means. Or perfection brought to perfection. Now, previously it wasn't imperfect in the sense that it was defective, but only in the sense that it was incomplete. 
And so he brought it to perfection. He brought it to completion. His work was all done. Then he could rest because it was finished. And that's the significance of Sabbath rest. Now, there was one thing that God could not create and that was not created at this point that was necessary for eternal development. And that was security from sin. Security from sin cannot be created. It can only be developed in the thinking process of created beings. Now we know there was not security from sin previous to this earth's creation because of what? The rebellion of Lucifer and a third of the angels. They were not secure from sin and they were living in a perfect environment in heaven. We know that God didn't create security from sin when he created this earth and Adam and Eve because of what? Because of Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion. And there hasn't been security from sin since that time until now. The one thing that was lacking that still was needed and still is needed is eternal security from sin. Everything can be in a state of completion and perfection, but as long as there's not security from sin, there's liability, there's vulnerability, there's risk. Will there come a time when there's security from sin? Yes, there will. We are told in the Bible, Nahum 1.9 and many other places, that, that sin will never rise again. There will come a time when it will be a thing of the past and it will never arise. Affliction will never arise a second time. And people settling into the truth. Yes, that's what the sealing is about for God's people. But this shows us that there has been a controversy going on, and the controversy is over the issues that are involved in this very thing of security from sin. Now let's go back here to some of these thoughts in Revelation 12 and tie this in. I want to read the rest of the passage from Desire of Ages. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Where is that from? That's from where we were reading just a little while ago in Revelation 12, verse 10. Here in Desire of Ages is quoting that passage in the context of Christ bowing his head and dying, having gained the victory in the struggle. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. When was his disguise torn away? At the cross, yes. Satan was cast down, not in the sense that he was physically finally shut out of heaven or physically cast out of heaven, such as took place back at the beginning in his rebellion, but Satan was cast out of heaven in the sense that he lost a foothold in the minds of the angels. He lost credibility. His argument had been met, refuted, and silenced. He had nothing more he could say 
on this particular issue. The angel saw that his disguise was ripped away. And that's why this terminology is significant here in Revelation 10 where it says there was found no place. I mean, not in in, uh, Revelation 10, but in Revelation 12. Remember there where it says when he was cast out, there was found no place for him in heaven? It means that he finally was pushed off the edge and there was no place for him to stand. He lost his credibility with the angels, and that's the sense in which he was cast out. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. What does that mean? That means that before it was in mystery. It was in obscurity. They couldn't see it clearly. They wondered. They questioned. Though they were loyal to God, they still did not have the answers. But now something had been answered. What had been answered? What were the issues that Satan had raised that now were clearly answered in the minds of the angels after 4,000 years of development? Yes, that God could not forgive sin. God could not be just and forgive sinners. Satan had claimed that God was not self-denying. It requires self-denial in order to forgive in order to exercise mercy. Satan had said there's no mercy with God. Justice requires that sinners must be shut out of God's presence. Satan claimed dominion over all the human race because they were sinners. He said, you've got to shut these people out of your presence. They're my subjects. Let me at them. And God said, no, they're subjects of my mercy. I will not let you destroy them. I will exercise forgiveness toward them. And Satan comes back and he says, why don't you let me in with them then? If you're preparing them to go to heaven, let me go with them. They're my subjects. I should be able to stay with them. And he constantly is arguing back. And the angels in heaven are hearing all of these arguments. Satan has that kind of a foothold as long as he has arguments that the the angels are saying, well, yes, I wonder what the answer to that is. Satan had said there was no self-denial with God. He said, you want to sit up there on top. You want everybody to serve you, but you won't exercise self-denial. You require all your subjects to be in submission to you and to exercise self-denial and to go along with your program, but you won't exercise self-denial. I can remember, as I mentioned, as a little boy, wondering, how is it that Jesus is the only one who can make an atonement for sin, who can die for sinners? I thought, if, if the principal, even, even at probably seven or eight years old, I can remember thinking, if the, the idea that someone can die in someone's behalf and that satisfies the, the penalty of transgression of God's law, why can't God send an angel to die for each person? Now, I remember hearing in Sabbath school that, that an angel's life was not enough to pay the penalty of sin, that Jesus' life was of much more value, and that made sense. But I thought, well, if... if a, I could see one angel's life was not enough, but maybe he could send one angel for everybody. You know, one angel for each person. 
But maybe that wasn't enough. So what if God sent one angel for every sin that I committed? If I committed a million sins in my life, he could send a million angels to die for me. Certainly, wouldn't a million angels pay for a lot of sins? If they all went through the suffering and torture of the cross and died for me? And if that wasn't enough, well, God can just create however many billions of angels it will take for each one of us, and they can come and go through and pay the penalty of sin. You know, and my, my mind went like that. But as I began realizing what some of Satan's claims were, that there was no self-denial with God, something turned on in my mind. A light came on in my mind, and I realized... I can't tell you how much satisfaction it brought to my mind to finally realize that if God had sent a million angels or a billion angels for every sin that I committed to die, all he would have been doing would be reinforcing Satan's claim, there's no self-denial with God. The more angels he sent, the more he would reinforce that claim. And Satan would say, see, I told you so to every being in the universe. God's willing to sacrifice as many angels as it takes, but he won't sacrifice anything from himself. When I realized that, I saw immediately that only God could make the sacrifice that would show that there was self-denial with God. Only God could do that. And that also showed me that Jesus was God. Jesus could make the sacrifice. Why could not God the Father come to this earth and make the sacrifice as Jesus did? <laughs> it says in the Bible that the Father dwells in what? Light? Unapproachable. Yes. The Father, if the Father had come in His glory to this earth, what would it have done to the human race? It would immediately destroyed them. The whole demonstration of self-denial would have accomplished nothing as far as saving humanity because it would have destroyed them. But the Son is the express image of the Father and is the agency through which the Father's thoughts are expressed. You perhaps have read in the Spirit of Prophecy passages that describe how the, the Son is to the Father what the mouth is to the mind. It's the channel through which the thoughts are made audible. Jesus is the agency of revealing the Father. He is the revelation of the Father. And so in coming to this earth, Jesus was God coming to this earth and demonstrating the Father. Jesus veiled the glory of the Father in the channel of humanity. So Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. It now was made evident that there was self-denial with God. Could Satan now say there's no self-denial with God? No. Well, he could say it, but... Would any of the angels wonder? You think any of the angels would have any question in their mind of whether there was self-denial with God? Not one. Not one. And none of the other beings in the universe have one shadow of a question of whether there's self-denial with God. 
the cross has totally settled that question. So does Satan say, well, I can see that that I lost the battle. And does he give up? No. Notice what happens. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. All the way down to this point, there was still a link of sympathy. Even with the heavenly beings who were loyal to God, we must remember they had loved Lucifer. He was their leader under God. They had loved to do his bidding and to work together with him. And there were links of sympathy, but the last link of sympathy was broken by this demonstration. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Now, this was the sense in which he was cast out, and how was he restricted? He was restricted not by an arbitrary restriction God placed upon him, but he was restricted because he had lost out in the argument. The demonstration had proven him wrong. Now he was much more restricted in what kind of arguments he could bring forth. Can we see that that was the nature of his casting out? Whatever attitude he might assume, it says that he could no longer accuse in the way that he had been able to previously. Now, it says, Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. What more was to be settled? What other issues could be raised that still were not understood by the angels? The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed, and for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. At our next meeting tomorrow morning, we want to look at the remaining issues that Satan raised now that those issues had been answered. Satan didn't give up the battle then. But he changed the issues. And we want to see how a demonstration that God made at the cross fully answered the issues that were raised then and how the issues that remain must still be settled. Would you join with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we are filled with awe and amazement and gratitude that divine wisdom does have an understanding of how to bring about the demonstrations that answer every question that can be raised, and that there will come a time when every knee will bow and acknowledge that thou art fair and just, 
and merciful. And we are thankful that we have the opportunity to have a part in thy great plan. We feel very weak and inadequate and in need of thy grace in every way. And we ask for the power and presence and working of thy spirit in our lives. I pray that we may honor thee, that the experience of Job may be an encouragement to us, that even though we may not understand the things that are taking place, even though it may seem that that much in our lives is falling apart and things are all going wrong, that maybe there is a divine plan and that we have a part. And I pray that we would determine to be true and faithful to Thee no matter what happens. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.